Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. What happens when you give prisoners a top-notch education? Our interview guest on Future Hindsight today, Max Kenner, is an expert on this topic. He's the founder and executive director of the Bard Prison Initiative, or BPI, a college that is spread across six interconnected prisons in New York State. He's also co-founder of the Consortium for the Liberal Arts in Prison and is the recipient of numerous awards, such as the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award in Education. Thank you for joining us. It's a thrill to be here. Thanks very much. So you started the Bard Prison Initiative when you were still in college at Bard. What compelled you to do this? I came from here in New York City where I grew up and had a sort of intuitive sense about the issue that we now call mass incarceration. Uh, So I found at Bard something that I didn't expect, which was a real love of learning, a real sense of fulfillment in success in academic and intellectual life, and also an unbelievable and overwhelming sense of our failure in indulging and engaging young people in this kind of thinking. It's central to the democratic experiment. To me, the crisis of mass incarceration and the problems we have in education, particularly higher education, are not separate. They're the same. They both follow from a cynicism about young people, a fear of our future and a fear of young people. And when we get serious about the future and begin to treat our children with more empathy and more love, I think we can address both problems at the same time. Where do you think it started sort of historically where we decided as a society, you know what, we don't really care about young people so much, we don't think that there is any point in investing here, and let's invest in the prison complex as opposed to in education. There are many different answers, but I think no answer is complete. And we know that somehow this phenomenon is a response in one way or another to the relative success and failures of the civil rights revolution. The challenges of genuine integration and genuine democracy in the United States and the reaction to the progressive and radical movements of the 1960s, I think in some ways fueled this investment in punishment. That apparatus of punishment is aimed overwhelmingly at certain demographics, and those are young, urban men or boys of color. We're in a very different place in how we think about this issue than we were 10 or 20 years ago, and um, we're better off for that way of thinking. But I think it's very easy to say that if we don't start taking our relationship to the future in a more serious way, things will get a lot worse before they get better. In this context, where does BPI fit in and where does a liberal arts education specifically fit in? Because that's what you deliver. BPI, the Bard Prison Initiative, is in some ways a very simple thing. We provide a old-fashioned, in-person, ambitious, broad, rigorous college education to incarcerated women and men across six prisons in the United States. And these incarcerated students engage in a full breadth of liberal study from literature and the humanities, the arts, 
also the natural sciences, mathematics, computer science, public health, history, anthropology, you name it. These are students, these are undergraduates, who overwhelmingly uh, have very poor histories with institutions, particularly educational institutions. So people who may have dropped out of school or failed out of school. or Historically, we did not invent the idea of college and prison. This has existed for some time. And actually, for over a generation, there was college opportunity in virtually every state and federal prison in the United States until the Clinton Crime Bill of 1994. And when that bill was being written, we knew there were vast bodies of evidence proving that higher education did more of really anything I think we might hope prisons might do. Reduce recidivism, that is the rate at which people who leave prison return to prison. Uh, Increase relationships with people in prison and their families, particularly their children, increase the likelihood of employability, and decrease things like violence, etc., within the prison itself. And it did all those things at less cost than almost anything else we did in the prison system, despite all that, or maybe you might say because of that, those systems were destroyed with the Clinton Crime Bill in 1994 when people in prison were made specifically not eligible for federal Pell Grants, which are the anchor through which these colleges were paid for in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. So the Barred Prison Initiative is one of a very small handful of programs that was founded in the 1990s in response to this evisceration of real education from our prison systems. And now there are many more programs like it, but it still is, there's enormous room for growth in the field. Why did we decide to spend no money, basically, on things that have been proven to work? You have to remember that that moment in time, American elected officials were also advocating for divestment in our systems of higher education. For example, a governor here in New York at the time, Governor George Pataki, did something very tricky. He took enormous amounts of money out of the state university system, but made higher education in prison the lightning rod political issue. So he said to the press and to people in politics, how could we provide this kind of education to these people at no cost when you, the taxpayer, are struggling to pay for your child? to go to college, while at the same time, when fewer people were looking, he was making it harder and harder for working people to pay for sending their children to college. So, you know, it was a classic American bait-and-switch, using poor people of color as a distraction uh, to make things worse for all of us. Hmm. The stakes are high in rectifying this situation, and it will take time. Let's talk about something super hopeful, which is, who are the students at BPI? Mm -hmm. What are they interested in? What are they studying? Mm -hmm. And in what way do they compare to your usual college student? First of all, they're students of a very wide variety of ages. The dumbest thing we do in higher education in the United States is assume that college makes sense for a certain kind of person at a precise stage in life, roughly age 18 to 23, right? And that's ridiculous. Our students range in age from, you know, 19 or 20 to 40, 50, or 60 years old. They are overwhelmingly people who are the first 
person in their families to receive a higher education. They're all convicted of crime and doing some serious portion of their life in prison. We pay no attention to an applicant's criminal history or institutional record when they apply to the college. And what we find in these institutions are student bodies that have a particular drive to learn, to become optimistic, and to change the course of their future for themselves and for their families. And they have extraordinary curiosity. BPI students leave prison and go on to complete graduate degrees at universities like Columbia, Yale, NYU, and overwhelmingly to take on careers that are truly in the public interest, finding their way into rooms where decisions are being made about and on behalf of communities. So now that we have about 600 formerly incarcerated Bard alumni across the tri-state area here in New York, they're making an extraordinary contribution to metropolitan and civic life. How does a liberal arts education help them do these jobs? A liberal arts education is an education for work and for life in the 21st century. We don't have industrial jobs in the United States that we can train people for to live a upwardly mobile, middle-class life like we did 60 or 70 years ago. But also, it goes to your question about cynicism and optimism. Typically, our universities and our museums and our cultural institutions purposefully or not, leave many Americans with the sense that that heritage belongs to someone else. And when students recognize that all of human history belongs to them as much as anybody else, they respond differently. I like that you have this focus on humans. In fact, you describe prisons as human institutions, social institutions. Why is it important that you choose those words to describe them? in a way that we describe schools and museums. When you talk to average people very often about people within prison, they talk as if those people are never coming home, or even more inherent in those discussions, that the time those people spend in prison is somehow not relevant. And so, you know, it's imperative to us to remind ordinary citizens, advocates, but also people directly impacted by this crisis, that the time that human beings spend incarcerated is as real, is as relevant as any other time people spend in their lives anywhere else. This reminds me that I had the opportunity to get a short glimpse of an upcoming documentary about BPI. And what struck me most was seeing that this program was investing in human beings, something far beyond providing a college education. Can you speak about how you were able to succeed here? Look, there are a lot of ways in which what we do is, frankly, old-fashioned, conservative, very basic. You know, we get a professor into a room, Um, with a group of students, and they talk about things that they've written or watched or viewed or looked at together. But I would add to that that in the United States today, we don't have 
places where people spend time together. The more apparatus we create to be able to communicate with one another, the more we use those tools, the more isolated we become as individuals. And BPI, uh, one of the things that's terrific about it, is not only the bonds that is created among our students in the prisons, but also after school, after incarceration, those people support one another and engage one another in a way that reflects a real lifelong commitment, a community that looks out for its members in a way that's, you know, needs to be replicated. In the years that you have been doing this, what has been the biggest surprise to you? I started this work very young, so I didn't know anything when we got started people who knew a lot more than me all suggested that we would never be allowed into the prisons. If we got into the prisons, nobody would be interested. If people in prison were interested in this kind of education, they wouldn't be successful at it. Uh, if they were successful at it, we wouldn't be able to find a way to pay for it. Right. So none of that happened, uh, which is terrific. From the outset, we were determined to build the best college we possibly could. I would never dream we'd be so successful at convincing the United States that higher education, education, broadly speaking, should be returned to its prison systems. We convinced the governor of New York. We were part of a coalition that convinced the president of the United States. Liberals, conservatives, people believe this stuff. But what we haven't been able to convince anybody is that when we return colleges to prison systems, that quality matters that we should be as ambitious for those students as any others, and that education is not a process of checking a box along the course of someone's life, but a deep investment in the future, and that what we put in really relates to what we get out of that experience. And the cynicism and disregard among decision makers, not the conservatives or the people in law enforcement or people who run the prison system, but the liberals who make decisions as elected officials or who run our university system, their disregard for the quality of education we provide these kinds of students is something I was never prepared for. Interesting. One of the things that you really don't do, that BPI doesn't do, is condescend to the students. In fact, BPI is a selective program. You have to apply to get in. Can you give us a little bit of a how-to and what the experience is? In our program in New York, we have, we're in six prisons, and more or less every summer we offer admission in each of those institutions. Sometimes, you know, 50 or 60 people express interest. Sometimes 150 or 200 people express interest in applying. And we sit everybody down. We give them a short piece of writing to read and then ask them to spend an hour or two writing about that piece of writing. We don't look at any transcripts. If they took a GED or a high school equivalency exam, we don't look at the scores. And, you know, one thing I want to say is that, you know, people who teach for us, who teach at elite universities, almost always want to do it again because in these classrooms they find students who recognize that something's at stake in their learning and that relates to their future that you don't get on conventional campuses. And throughout the history of the United States there have always been groups of people who took better advantage of a little bit of access to education. The classic example, of course, are immigrants today, but also for 200 years in the United States, the group of people who accomplished the most 
at primary, secondary, or higher education in the United States are the generation or two of Americans who experienced emancipation, coming out of slavery into freedom. And we suggest today that all over the American landscape, there are these kinds of people that our university systems are failing to engage, but the simplest and most direct and most tragic place that we can find these people is in our prison systems. How can everyday people get involved either with BPI or with demanding education in prisons? So, you know, BPI is a college, and, you know, we're a college that's unusual. We're a tuition-free college. We receive no government money in any real way, and we have no endowment. So we always have our hat out, so I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't say that, um, you know, we're always eager and desperate for financial help. But, you know, in the United States, criminal justice reform, including reform of how we do education in prisons, is perhaps the one political issue where there's some bipartisan consensus and cooperation. And that should be celebrated. And, you know, the fact that an issue that was as divisive and visceral and hateful as it was 15, 20, and 30 years ago, can transform to become something that people tend to agree on. That's something that we should reward our elected officials for and encourage them to find pathways to have the kinds of conversations that used to be so bad and now are more productive in other kinds of fields and other kinds of issues. Tell us about one of the jobs that you're surprised one of your graduates has that's really making an impact? I don't like to say that I'm surprised because, you know, these are people I've thought highly of as individuals for a long time. For example, in efforts for bail reform, in efforts for sentencing reform, in efforts to change the status of people in prison or returning home from prison as voters in response to tragedies of gun violence in the United States. BPI alumni are at the fore of all of these efforts. BPI alum are working in places like the Ford Foundation, the Open Society Foundation, uh, the mayor's office here in New York City, and it happens with increasing frequency, and not just in criminal justice, and not just in government, not just philanthropy, but in business and the arts as well. So um, it's a complete college, and we don't want to suggest that just because people went to college in a particular circumstance that we circumscribe their futures to be participating in a certain kind of career field. Yes, they'd live full lives, it sounds like, when they have the opportunity to participate in our society. What makes you hopeful about the future? It's precisely the cynicism of decision-makers about the kinds of people that become BPI students and the extraordinary volume of the achievements of our students that makes me optimistic for the future. Because I know if you talk to the experts in America's best education programs at our elite universities or people who make decisions and are supposedly the best informed at the places where they study things like crime and punishment. The outcomes of our work are impossible. They're impossibly good, and the only way we can get out of the crises that we face as Americans or as humans in the 21st century are to create impossible outcomes, and that's something that we can do. 
Amazing. Thank you very much. Well, we've heard all of this before, that we're not reduced to the worst act that we've ever done, or even the best act that we've ever done. We're so much more than that as human beings. Our our lives are much fuller. And what Max's conversation really did for me is remind me that we have to invest in human beings wholly, fully, so that wherever we are, we can have a vibrant society. And it may be that it is through educating them in prisons. I think one of the big takeaways is that prison is not a waste of time. It is an opportunity for realignment, for getting a top-notch education, for allowing people to learn something new and uh, learn to think, engage in critical thinking in the best way possible in the tradition of a liberal arts college. And uh, in a way, that's a reflection of who Max is as a person. You know, he is somebody who created this opportunity and he didn't just create it for the prisoners, but he also created it for us as a society. I think much more so that we can A, rethink it and B, to enrich our society by investing in human beings. How can we end homelessness? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Maria Foscarinas. She's the founder and executive director of the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty and has advocated for solutions to homelessness at the national level since 1985. Right now, only one in four people who are poor enough to qualify for federal housing assistance actually receives it. Everybody else is on a waiting list. In many parts of the country, waiting lists are so long that they've closed. It's not the only cause, but it is by far the leading cause, and it started in the early 1980s. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.